and now Odysseus's cunning was revealed. He stripped off his rags and leapt with his bow to the great threshold. Spreading the arrows out before his feet, he spoke to the suitors, Now that we've separated the men from the boys, I'll see if I can hit a mark that no man has ever hit. Apollo grant me glory. As he spoke, he took aim at Antinous, who at that moment was lifting to his lips a golden cup, a fine two-eared golden goblet, and was just about to sip the wine. Bloodshed was the farthest thing from his mind. They were at a banquet. Who would think that one man, however strong, would take them all on and so ensure his own death? Odysseus took dead aim at Antinous's throat and shot, and the arrow punched all the way through the soft neck tissue. Antinous fell to one side, the cup dropped from his hands, and a jet of dark blood spurted from his nostrils. He kicked the table as he went down, spilling the food on the floor, and the bread and roast meat were fouled in the dust. The crowd burst into an uproar when they saw Antinous go down. They jumped from their seats and ran in a panic through the hall, scanning the walls for weapons, a spear, a shield, but there were none to be had. Odysseus listened to their angry jeers. You think you can shoot at men, you tramp? That's your last contest. You're as good as dead. You've killed the best young man in Ithaca. Vultures will eat you on this very spot. They all assumed he had not shot to kill and had no idea how tightly the net had been drawn around them. Odysseus scowled at the whole lot of them and said, You dogs, you thought I would never come home from Troy, so you wasted my house, forced the women to sleep with you, and while I was still alive, you courted my wife without any fear of the gods of high heaven or any retribution from the world of men. Now the net has been drawn tight around you. At these words, the color drained from their faces, and they all looked around for a way to escape. Only Eurymachus had anything to say. If you are really Odysseus of Ithaca, then what you say is just. The citizens have done many foolish things in this house and many in the fields, but the man to blame lies there, dead, Antinous. He started it all, not so much because he wanted a marriage or needed one, but for another purpose, which Zeus did not fulfill. He wanted to be king in Ithaca and to kill your son in ambush. Now he's been killed and he deserved it, but spare your people. We will pay you back for all we have eaten and drunk in your house. We will make a collection. Each man will put in the worth of 20 oxen. We will make restitution in bronze and gold until your heart is soothed. Until then, no one could blame you for being angry. Odysseus fixed him with a stare and said, Eurymachus, Not even if all of you gave me your entire family fortunes, all that you have and ever will have, would I stay my hands from killing. You courted my wife, and you will pay in full. Your only choice now is to fight like men or run for it. Who knows? One or two of you might live to see another day, but I doubt it. Their blood turned milky when they heard this. Eurymachus now turned to them and said, Friends, This man is not going to stop at anything. He's got his arrows and bow, and he'll shoot from the threshold until he's killed us all. We've got to fight back. Draw your swords and use the tables as shields. If we charge him in a mass and push him from the doorway, we can get reinforcements from town in no time. Then this man will have shot his last shot. With that, he drew his honed bronze sword and charged Odysseus with an ear-splitting cry. Odysseus, in the same instant, let loose an arrow that entered his chest, 
just beside the nipple and spiked down to his liver. The sword fell from Eurymachus's hand. He spun around and fell on a table, knocking off dishes and cups, and rolled to the ground, his forehead banging up and down against it, and his feet kicking a chair in his death throes, until the world went. Amphinomus went for Odysseus next, rushing at him with his sword drawn, hoping to drive him away from the door. Telemachus got the jump on him, though, driving a bronze-tipped spear into his back, square between the shoulder blades and through to his chest. He fell with a thud, his forehead hammering into the ground. Telemachus sprang back, leaving the spear right where it was, stuck in Amphinomus, fearing that if he tried to pull it out, someone would rush him, cut him down as he bent over the corpse. So he ran over to his father's side, and his words flew fast. I'll bring you a shield, father, two spears and a bronze helmet. I'll find one that fits. When I come back, I'll arm myself and the cowherd and swineherd, better armed than not. And Odysseus, the great tactician, bring me what you can while I still have arrows, or these men might might drive me away from the door. And Telemachus was off to the room where the weapons were stored. He took four shields, eight spears, and four bronze helmets with thick horsehair plumes and brought them quickly to his father. Uh, Telemachus armed himself, the two servants did likewise, and the three of them took their stand alongside the cunning warrior Odysseus. As long as the arrows held out, he kept picking off the suitors one by one, and they fell thick as flies. But when the master archer ran out of arrows, he leaned the bow against the doorpost of the entrance hall and slung a four-ply shield over his shoulder, put on his head a well-wrought helmet with a plume that made his every nod a threat, and took two spears tipped with heavy bronze. Built into the higher wall of the main hall was a back door reached by a short flight of stairs and leading to a passage closed by double doors. Odysseus posted the swineherd at this doorway, which could be attacked by only one man at a time. It was just then that Agelaus called to the suitors, Let's one of us get up to the back door and get the word to the town. Act quickly and this man will have shot his last. But the goatherd, Melanthius, answered him, That won't work, Agelaus. The door outside is too near the courtyard, an easy shot from where he's standing, and the passageway is dangerously narrow. One good man could hold it against all of us. Look, let me bring you weapons and armor from the storeroom. That has to be where Odysseus and his son have laid them away. So saying, Melanthius clambered up to Odysseus's storerooms. There he picked out twelve shields and as many spears and helmets and brought them out quickly to give to the suitors. Odysseus's heart sank, and his knees grew weak when he saw the suitors putting on armor and brandishing spears. This wasn't going to be easy. His words flew out to Tel- Telemachus. One of the women in the halls must be waging war against us, unless it's Melanthius. And Telemachus, cool-headed under fire, No, it's my fault, father, and no one else's. I must have left the storeroom door open, and one of them spotted it. Eumius, go close the door to the storeroom, and see whether one of the women is behind this, or Melanthius, son of Dolius, as I suspect. As they were speaking, Melanthius the goat herd was making another trip to the storeroom for more weapons. 
The swineherd spotted him and was quick to point him out to Odysseus. There he goes, my lord Odysseus. The sneak? Just as we thought, on his way to the storeroom. Tell me what to do. Kill him if I prove to be the better man, or bring him to you so he can pay in full for all the wrongs he has done here in your house. Odysseus brought his mind to bear on this. Telemachus and I will keep the suitors busy in the hall here. Don't worry about that. Tie him up. Bend his arms and legs behind him and lash them to a board strapped onto his back. Then hoist him up to the rafters in the storeroom and let him let, leave him there to twist in the wind. This was just what Eumaeus and the cowherd wanted to hear. Off they went to the storeroom, unseen by Melanthius, who was inside rooting around for armor and weapons. They lay in wait on either side of the door, and when Melanthius crossed the threshold, carrying a beautiful helmet in one hand, and in the other, a broad old shield flecked with rust, a shield the hero Laertes had carried in his youth, but that had long since been laid aside with its straps unstitched. Eumaeus and the cowherd Philetius jumped him and dragged him by the hair back into the storeroom. There they threw him hard to the ground, knocking the wind out of him, and tied his hands and feet behind his back, making it hurt, as Odysseus had ordered. Then they attached a rope to his body and hoisted him up along the tall pillar until he was up by the rafters. And you, swineherd Eumaeus, you mocked him. Now you'll really be on watch, Melanthius, the whole night through, lying on a feather bed, just your style, and you're sure to see the early dawn come up from ocean streams, couched in gold at the hour when you drive your goats up to the hall to make a feast for the suitors. So Melanthius was left there, racked with pain, while Eumaeus and the cowherd put on their armor, closed the polished door, and rejoined Odysseus, the cunning warrior. So they took their stand there on the threshold, breathing fury, four of them against the many who stood in the hall. I should explain here a little bit about the character Melanthius. Melanthius is a slave, a servant in Odysseus's house who has worked for Odysseus's family his entire life. He's a goat herder and his job takes him back and forth between the fields and the town and the palace. Melanthius has come to consider himself part of the suitors group uh, through the time that they've been occupying the house. And his name is a clue to his character. The prefix melan, M-E-L-A-N, also found in the word melanin, um, is a Greek word that means black. It doesn't mean anything about race. In this case, uh, the word melon means that his heart is black, that he's a bad person. Um, there is an equivalent character on the feminine side of the household, a maid named Melantho. And then Athena was with them, Zeus's daughter, looking just like Mentor and assuming his voice. Odysseus, glad to see her, spoke these words. Mentor, old friend, help me out here. Remember all the favors I've done for you. We go back a long way, you and I. He figured it was Athena, the soldier's goddess. On the other side, the suitors yelled and shouted, Agelaus's voice rising to rebuke Athena. You there, Mentor, don't let Odysseus talk you into helping him and fighting us. This is the way I see it turning out. When we've killed these men, father and son, we'll kill you next for what you mean to do in this hall. You'll pay with your life. And when we've taken care of all five of you, 
We'll take everything you have, mentor, everything in your house and in your fields, and add it to Odysseus's property. We won't let your sons stay in your house or let your daughters or even your wife go about freely in the town of Ithaca. This made Athena all the more angry, and she turned on Odysseus and snapped at him. I can't believe, Odysseus, that you, of all people, have lost the guts you had when you fought the Trojans for nine long years to get Helen back, killing so many in combat and coming up with a plan that took wide Troy. How is it that now, when you've come home, you get all teary-eyed about showing your strength to this pack of suitors? Get over here next to me and see what I can do. I'll show you what sort of man mentor son of Alcimus is and how he repays favors in the heat of battle. Athena spoke these words, but she did not yet give Odysseus the strength to turn the tide. She was still testing him and his glorious son to see what they were made of. As for herself, the goddess flew up to the roof beam of the smoky hall, just like a swallow. The suitors were now rallied by Agelaus and by Damastor, Eurynomus, and Amphimedon, as well as by Demotolemus and Pisander, son of Polyctor, and the warrior Polybus. These were the best of the suitors, lucky enough to still be fighting for their lives. The rest had been laid low by the showers of arrows. Agelaus made this speech to them. He's had it now. Mentors abandoned him after all that hot air, and the four of them are left alone at the outer doors. All right now, don't throw your spears all at once. You six go first, and hope that Zeus allows Odysseus to be hit and gives us the glory. The others won't matter once he goes down. They took his advice and gave it their best. But Athena made their shots all come to nothing, one man hitting the doorpost, another the door, another's bronze-tipped ash spear sticking into the wall. Odysseus and his men weren't even nicked, and the great hero said to them, It's our turn now. I say we throw our spears right into the crowd. These bastards mean to kill us on top of everything else they've done to wrong me. He spoke, and they all threw their sharp spears with deadly aim. Odysseus hit, hit Demotolemus, Telemachus got Euryades, the swineherd, Elatus, and the cattle herder took out Pisander. They all bit the dirt at the same moment, and the suitors retreated to the back of the hall, allowing Odysseus and his men to run out and pull their spears from the dead men's bodies. The suitors rallied for another volley, throwing their sharp spears with all they had. This time, Athena made most of them miss, one man hitting the doorpost, another the door, another's bronze-tipped ash spear sticking into the wall. But Amphimedon's spear grazed Telemachus's wrist, breaking the skin, and Tisippus's spear clipped Eumaeus's shoulder as it sailed over his shield and kept on going until it hit the ground. Then Odysseus and his men got off another round into the throng, Odysseus, sacker of cities, hitting Eurydamus. Telemachus getting Amphimedon, the swineherd, Polybus, and the lastly, the cattle herder, striking Tisippus square in the chest. And he crowed over him, always picking a fight, just like your father. Well, you can stop all your big talk now. We'll let the gods have the last word this time. Take this spear as your host's gift. Fair exchange for the hoof you threw at godlike Odysseus when he made his rounds begging in the hall. Thus the herder of the spiral-horned cattle. Odysseus, meanwhile, had skewered Damastor's son with a hard spear thrust in hand-to-hand fighting, and Telemachus killed Leocritus, Evanor's son, piercing him in the groin and driving his bronze spear all the way through. Leocritus pitched forward his forehead, slamming into the ground. 
Only then did Athena hold up her overpowering aegis from her high perch, and the minds of the suitors shriveled with fear, and they fled through the hall like a herd of cattle that an iridescent gadfly goads along on a warm spring afternoon, with Odysseus and his men after them like vultures with crooked talons and hooked beaks, descending from the mountains upon a flock of smaller birds who fly low under the clouds and over the plain. The vultures swoop down to pick them off. The smaller birds cannot escape, and men thrill to see the chase in the sky. Odysseus and his cohorts were clubbing the suitors right and left all through the hall. Horrible groans rose from their lips as their heads were smashed in and the floor of the great hall smoked with blood. It was then that Leodes, the soothsayer, rushed forward, clasped Odysseus's knees, and begged for his life. By your knees, Odysseus, respect me and pity me. I swear I've never said or done anything wrong to any woman in your house. I tried to stop the suitors when they did such things, but they wouldn't listen, wouldn't keep their hands clean, and now they've paid a cruel price for their sins. And I, their soothsayer, who have done no wrong, will be laid low for them. That's the gratitude I get. Odysseus scowled down at the man and said, If you're really their soothsayer, as you boast you are, how many times must you have prayed in the halls that my sweet homecoming would never come, and that you would be the one my wife would go off with and bear children to? You're a dead man. As he spoke, his strong hand reached for a sword that lay nearby, a sword Agelaus had dropped when he was killed. The soothsayer was struck full in the neck. His lips were still forming words when his lopped head rolled in the dark. All this while, the bard, Phemius, was busy trying not to be killed. This man, Terpes's son, sang for the suitors under compulsion. He stood now with his pure-toned lyre near the back door, trying to decide whether he should slip out from the hall and crouch at the altar of Zeus in the courtyard, the great altar on which Laertes and Odysseus had burned many an ox's thigh, or whether he should rush forward and supplicate Odysseus by his knees. Better to fall at the man's knees, he thought. So he laid the hollow lyre on the ground between the wine bowl and silver-studded chair, and ran up to Odysseus and clasped his knees. His words flew up to Odysseus like birds. By your knees, Odysseus, respect me and pity me. You will regret it some day if you kill a bard, me, who sings for gods and men. I'm self-taught and a god has planted in my heart all sorts of songs and stories, and I can sing to you as to a god, so don't be too eager to slit my throat. Telemachus will tell you that I didn't come to your house by choice to entertain the suitors at their feasts. There were too many of them. They made me come. Telemachus heard him and said to his father, He's innocent. Don't kill him. And let's spare the herald, Medon, who used to take care of me when I was a child, if Philetius hasn't already killed him or the swineherd, or if he didn't run into you as you were charging through the house. Medon heard what Telemachus said. He was under a chair, wrapped in an oxhide, cowering from death. Now he jumped up, stripped off the oxhide, ran to Telemachus, and fell at his knees. His words rose on wings. I'm here, Telemachus. Hold back and ask your father to hold back too, or he might kill me with cold bronze, strong as he is, and as mad as he is at the suitors who ate away his house and paid you no honor. Odysseus smiled at this and said to him, Don't worry, he saved you. Now you know and you can tell the world how much better good deeds are than evil. Go outside now, you and the singer, 
and sit in the yard away from the slaughter until I finish everything I have to do inside the house. So he spoke, and the two went out of the hall and sat down by the altar of great Zeus, wide-eyed and expecting death at any moment. Odysseus, too, had his eyes wide open, looking all through his house to see if anyone was still alive and hiding from death. But everyone he saw lay in blood and dust, the whole lot of them, like fish that fishermen have drawn up in nets from the gray sea onto the curved shore. They lie all in heaps on the sand beach, longing for the salt waves and the blazing sun drains their life away. So too the suitors, lying in heaps. Then Odysseus called to Telemachus, Go call the nurse Eurycleia for me. I want to tell her something. So Telemachus went to Eurycleia's room, rattled the door, and called, Get up and come out here, old woman, you who are in charge of all our women's servants. Come on, my father has something to say to you. Eurycleia's response died on her lips. She opened the doors to the great hall, came out, and followed Telemachus to where Odysseus, spattered with blood and grime, stood among the bodies of the slain. A lion that is just fed upon an ox in a field has his chest and cheeks smeared with blood, and his face is terrible to look upon. So too Odysseus, smeared with gore from head to foot. When Eurycleia saw all the corpses and the pools of blood, she lifted her head to cry out in triumph. But Odysseus stopped her cold, reining her in with these words, Rejoice in your heart, but do not cry aloud. It is unholy to gloat over the slain. These men have been destroyed by divine destiny and their own recklessness. They honored no one, rich or poor, high or low, who came to them. And so by their folly, they have brought upon themselves an ugly fate. Now tell me, which of the women dishonor me and which are innocent? And Eurycleia, the loyal nurse, Yes, indeed, child, I will tell you all. There are 50 women in your house, servants we have taught to do their work, to card wool and bear all the drudgery. Of these, 12 have shamed this house and respect neither me nor Penelope herself. Telemachus has only now become a man and his mother has not allowed him to direct the women's servants. May I go now to the upstairs room and tell your wife? Some god has wrapped her up in sleep. Odysseus, his mind teeming, answered her. Don't wake her yet. First, bring those women who have acted so disgracefully. Well, the old woman went out through the hall to tell the women the news and to summon twelve. Odysseus called Telemachus and the two herdsmen and spoke to them with words fletched like arrows. Start carrying out the bodies and have the women help you. Then sponge down all the beautiful tables and chairs. When you've set the whole house in order, take the women outside between the round house and the courtyard fence. Slash them with swords until they have forgotten their secret lovemaking with the suitors and finish them off. Thus Odysseus and the women came in, huddled together and shedding salt tears. First, they carried out the dead bodies and set them down under the courtyard's portico, propping them against each other. Odysseus himself kept them at it. Then he had them sponge down all the beautiful tables and chairs. Telemachus, the swineherd and the cowherd, scraped the floor with hose, and the women carried out the scrapings and threw them away. When they had set the whole house in order, they took the women out between the round house and the courtyard fence, penning them in with no way to escape. And Telemachus, in his cool-headed way, said to the others, I won't allow a clean death for these women, the suitor's sluts. 
who have heaped reproaches upon my own head and upon my mother's. He spoke, and tied the cable of a dark proud ship to a great pillar, and pulled it about the roundhouse, stretching it high so their feet couldn't touch the ground. Long-winged thrushes or doves making their way to their roosts fall into a snare set in a thicket, and the bed that receives them is far from welcome. So too, these women, their heads hanging in a row, the cable looped around each of their necks. It was a most piteous death. Their feet fluttered for a little while, but not for long. Then they brought Melanthius outside, and in their fury they sliced off his nose and ears with cold bronze, and pulled his genitals out by the root, raw meat for the dogs, and chopped off his hands and feet. Stunned, they washed their own hands and feet, and went back into their master's great hall. Then Odysseus said to Eurycleia, Bring me sulfur, old woman, and fire, so that I can fumigate the hall, and go tell Penelope to come down here, and all of the women in the house as well. And Eurycleia, the faithful nurse, As you say, child, but first let me bring you a tunic and a cloak for you to put on. You should not be standing here like this with rags on your body. It's not right. Odysseus, his mind teeming, answered her, First make a fire for me here in the hall. He spoke, and Eurycleia did as she was told. She brought fire and sulfur, and Odysseus purified his house, the halls, and the courtyard. Then the old nurse went through Odysseus's beautiful house, telling the women the news. They came from their hall with torches in their hands and thronged around Odysseus and embraced him. And as they kissed his head and shoulders and hands, he felt a sudden sweet urge to weep, for in his heart, he knew them all.